No question in one sense, the New Testament does teach there's such a thing as us and them. If you've trusted Jesus as Savior, you are a child of God. You are a citizen of heaven. You're an alien and a stranger on earth. Jesus talked about two different paths. Even the word holy means other than. So there is a sense in which there is us and there is them. But if we're not careful, that can become us against them. And that is a problem. How do we make sure that doesn't happen? Well, that's what we want to talk about today. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Acts chapter 21. We have a lot of verses to cover this morning, so we're going to uh, move quickly. I want to limit my comments to just the main storyline. We left Paul last week right on the edge of Jerusalem. He knows that bonds and afflictions await him there, and now he's ready to enter the city. So chapter 21, verse 17. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So just a couple quick comments. So this is the Jerusalem church. It's led by James. This is not James as in uh, Peter, James, and John. That James was put to death by Herod. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who also wrote the New Testament epistle of James. So this is probably when Paul and the delegates from these churches that Paul has planted present their offering to James and to the elders in order to help the Jerusalem church. Verse 19. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Now, I think that's fairly clear. But just a couple of comments. So what exactly is happening here? 
So Paul begins to tell James and the elders of the amazing things God is doing as Paul is planting these churches among the Gentiles. And James and the elders are thrilled with this. They're glorifying God for what he is doing. But he also reminds them that the situation is very delicate because there are also thousands, the Greek here is tens, thousands of Jews who have also believed, who are part of this Jerusalem church, but they're also zealous for the law. Now that raises a question. How could you be a true believer and be zealous for the law? That's kind of like, how can you be a true believer and be a legalist? It happens. But part of the complication is for these Jewish people, especially those that lived in Jerusalem, their sense of, of government, their politics, their social system, their religion, everything was wrapped around the law and the temple. That was their identity. That's who they were as a people and a nation. It just was not that simple to separate out what does it mean to be Jewish and be a Christian. You remember Peter was already identified as the leader of the New Testament church. When God appears to him in a vision and has to tell him three times it's okay to violate the dietary laws and mix in with the Gentiles. It just gives you a sense of how deeply ingrained this way of life was. It it just was not that simple to change. It was an ongoing discipleship issue. The second thing is they had been told things about Paul and his teaching that simply weren't true. That Paul was speaking against Moses and against the law and, and against their ways and customs. In a sense saying that Paul was anti-Jewish. Now the reality is that these were legalistic Jews who had come from these cities where Paul had planted churches. They were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. So you can imagine these conversations where there's Jews who live in Gentile cities where Paul is planting churches and they're asking questions like, what do we have to do in order to be Jewish Christians in a Gentile city. In other words, do we have to practice this? Do we have to practice this? Do we have to do this? Do we have to do that? And Paul's trying to help them sort that out. But these Jewish legalists then misinterpret that as being anti-Jewish, anti-law, anti-Moses. As often happens with legalists, they misrepresent the truth in order to have their way. So they've kind of stirred up the people against Paul. The third thing has to do with the background here. So this is roughly A.D. 57. The governor is named Felix, and Felix was bloodthirsty. He was a a very violent, oppressive governor. And as a result of that, it galvanized the Jewish people together as a nation. It had this sense that it was us against them. As a result of that, all of them had pulled together. 
They had a deep hatred for the Romans and for Gentiles. And this point in history, it was a powder keg. The tension was extremely high. So you put all of that together and the chance of this blowing up is very high. So that's what James is referring to. We're going to have to be really careful here. They're going to find out that you're here. So he comes up with a plan. They have four men that are undergoing a Jewish vow. We don't really have time to get into all that. Suffice it to say, they want Paul to go with them to the temple to participate in the vow in hopes that the Jewish people would see that Paul still respects the Jews and their ways. Then James adds that they made a decision regarding the Gentiles at the Jerusalem Council, that was chapter 15 of Acts, that the Gentiles do not have to become Jewish in order to be saved. He's just reaffirming all that is still true. None of that's changing. This is just a practical matter in order to try to come together as Gentile and Jewish Christians. Paul writes about this when he writes to the Corinthians. He actually says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. To the legalists, I became a legalist. To the Gentiles, I became a Gentile. This is exactly what he's talking about. Not putting unnecessary obstacles between you and the people you're trying to reach. There's no need to unnecessarily offend the people that you're trying to reach and bring together. So this is the plan that James comes up with. But it's not enough. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who practiced preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then when the city was provoked and the people rushed together and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some were shouting another. When he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting away with him. So most likely these are legalistic Jews from Ephesus. If you just go back a couple chapters, you get a sense of who these people were and how they stirred up trouble in Ephesus. They are in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. While there, they see Paul. 
and they immediately seize him and they stir up the crowd and they begin to make their accusations that he speaks against Moses and the law, but also that he had brought a Greek, a Gentile, into this holy area. Trophimus was most likely the representative from the Ephesian church that had come to represent the church in Ephesus to bring the offering. Certainly he was with Paul, but there is no chance that Paul brought him into this sacred area. What they're talking about is in the temple area, there was an outside courtyard that was called the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could come up to that point. There was a four and a half foot wall that then separated that court from the Jewish court, which was inside of that. There were signs all along that four and a half foot wall that told the Gentiles they could go no further under penalty of death. As a matter of fact, in the last 100, 120 years, archaeologists have actually found examples of these signs that sat on these walls warning the Gentiles if they went any further, they were subject to death. This issue was so sensitive that this was the one area where the Romans granted the Jews permission to carry out the death penalty. If a Gentile crossed that line, even if it was a Roman citizen, they had permission to put them to death. Now stop and think about this. Paul is bending over backwards to make sure he doesn't offend his Jewish brothers. There's absolutely no possibility that he invited his friend Trophimus into this sacred area. It would not only risk his life, but the life of his friend. But that is the accusation. So it rallies the people and they seize him. It's worth noting that at this moment in the story, it's the last time that the Apostle Paul will ever be free for the rest of the book of Acts. He will now be in captivity for the rest of the story. They drag him out of the Jewish courtyard, and the text says the gates slammed closed. There's probably some symbolism there. They were not only closed to Paul, but that was kind of the final closure to Jesus. They just didn't want to hear it. So they are literally in the process of beating him to death when the Roman commander hears it. Right to the north of the temple area was a magnificent fortress called Antonio's Fortress. It was built by Herod the Great and overlooked the temple area just for this reason. If there was going to be trouble, this is usually where the trouble was. So he receives word, he grabs some soldiers, they rush down, they stop the beating. He has Paul put in chains, two chains, probably one on each wrist, chained to two different soldiers. And he begins to ask the crowd, what is the charge that you're beating this person to death? And he finds out they don't really know. He hears all kinds of things. 
So he's going to take him back to the barracks, to the fortress, and try to figure it out. When it says they carried him, it's probably more literally they drug him. You can imagine this scene. Think about the stairs that go up to the state capitol. It's a scene very much like that. It's a series of steep stairs, and at the top is the entrance into the fortress. This mob was out of control. They're trying to get Paul into the fortress. Most likely, with the chains and the soldiers, they're just dragging him, and the people are trying to hold on to him in order to uh, get him into the fortress to question him. The paragraph ends with the phrase, away with him. One of the things I've pointed out is how Luke, who is the writer of Acts and the writer of the Gospel of Luke, draws these parallels between Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem and Paul's final trip to Jerusalem. This is another one of those. If you go back and look in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is on trial before Pilate and the crowd is shouting, this is the exact same phrase they use, away with him, which essentially means they want him put to death. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the, assass- of the assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. So Paul is brought into the barracks. And really in strangely polite language, even when you read it in the English text, it sounds odd. May I ask you a question? Now think about this. This man was in the process of being beaten to death. He certainly is bloodied. He's certainly bruised. He's certainly disheveled. This would have been utter chaos. And in the midst of that, he has the composure to simply say, may I ask you a question? The commander then is taken aback by that. Paul speaks perfect Greek, and he identifies that. Three years earlier, there had been an Egyptian false prophet who came to Jerusalem, stirred up several thousand Jewish people, They ended up on the Mount of Olives with the belief that the Messiah was going to return, knock down the walls, and they were going to take the city of Jerusalem. As a result of that, Felix had slaughtered many of these Jewish people, and the Egyptian false prophets had fled into the wilderness. So apparently the commander was assuming he's back. But now when he hears Paul, he knows that's not the case. Paul identifies he's Jewish from the city of Tarsus. And again, in very polite 
language, unusually polite. He begs him, please let me speak to my people. In, it was almost unheard of. In a situation like this, a Roman commander would grant the prisoner's request to speak. But I think he is so taken aback by Paul and his composure and his respect that he grants him permission. And Paul speaking in Hebrew, which would have caught the attention of the Hebrew people, greets them, brethren and fathers, as respectful as he possibly could be. So what's going on here? If you go back to the story of Paul, you know that since his conversion, he has wanted nothing more than the opportunity to speak to his fellow Jewish people and explain to them that he had been wrong about what he was doing persecuting the Christians. He'd been wrong about Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is what Jesus has done for you. But he has not been allowed to do so for 20 years. He realizes now that this is probably the only chance he'll ever get in his lifetime to give his personal testimony to his fellow Jews. So he is doing everything possible not to blow the opportunity. If he would have responded with anger, if he would have played the victim, if he would have got all defensive, he would have blown his one and only chance at this. And that's why Luke records this with such excessive politeness is Paul is doing his best to not miss his moment. Chapter 22, verse 2, And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. So he starts to go through his story. Now when Paul says, my defense, we would expect him to say, this wasn't true, this wasn't true, I didn't do that. But he has no interest in that. His only interest is in sharing his personal testimony. He's a Jew born in Tarsus. He grew up in Jerusalem and studied under Gamaliel, who was the absolute top rabbi of his day, who taught strictly according to the law. Paul identifies, I was zealous for God, just like you are. This is an important point where he identifies with them. I believe that the Christians were wrong. The way 
means Christianity. I didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. I thought the Christians were wrong. I thought what God wanted is for me to wipe them out. So I was killing them. I was arresting them, men and women, throwing them into prison. He says, you can talk to the high priest. You can talk to the council, the Sanhedrin. They were the ones that actually gave me warrants to go to Damascus, find the Christians, bring them back, put them into prison. Basically, he's saying, you all know this was true. But it happened that as I was on my way, approaching Damascus, about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? He said to me, Get up and go into Damascus. And there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law, a well, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near me said, Brother Saul, Receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him. And he said, God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So he's on his way to Damascus in order to arrest Christians. And there is a bright light in the sky. He falls to the ground blinded. And he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says that the witnesses saw the light. They heard the voice. They just didn't understand what it was saying. The voice says, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine this moment when you are convinced that Jesus was not the Messiah, that none of this is true? And suddenly in this moment, it's the resurrected Jesus talking to you. I'm Jesus, and you're persecuting me. So Saul responds, what do you want me to do? Go to Damascus, I'll tell you from there. Saul is blind, so his companions take him to Damascus. There he meets Ananias. He's very careful to say Ananias was a devout Jew, strictly by the law, well respected by all the other Jews. And he's the one that tells, Brother Saul, receive your sight. God has revealed himself to you. Everything that Ananias says is very Jewish. 
when he says, the God of your fathers has appointed you to know his will, see the righteous one, hear an utterance from his mouth, be a witness for him. Very reflective of an Old Testament prophet being called into service. He ends by telling Saul, what's the delay? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, some of the translations are not so good in verse 16. So it's helpful to understand the phrase, wash away your sins, grammatically can only be tied to the phrase, calling on his name. In other words, by calling on his name, wash away your sins. Verse 17, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So this would be three years later, after Paul's conversion. He shows up back in Jerusalem. He's at the temple praying. And God once again appears to him and tells him, you've got to get out of Jerusalem quickly. These people are going to kill you. What Paul is saying, following that, is he is saying to Jesus that these people know that I opposed you. They know that I killed Christians. They know that I was in, in approval of the stoning of Stephen. Please give me one chance to tell them I was wrong. Let me tell them my story. That's what he's saying there. But Jesus says, no, it's time to get out of town and I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. So for the last 17-ish years, Paul has been planting churches among the Gentiles. But he has dreamed of this moment of the opportunity of sharing his testimony with his fellow Jews. Verse 22, for they listened to him up to this statement. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? 
When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. So the Jewish people listen up until the moment where Paul says Jesus sent him to the Gentiles. That's just more than they can take. So once more, there's an uproar and they're throwing their coats and dust. It becomes chaos. So the commander pulls Jesus into the fortress and decides, I've had it up to here with this. So he's going to scourge him in order to get information out of him, essentially to torture him, to make him talk. Now we know up to this point, Paul had received 39 lashes five times. He had been beaten with rods three times. None of that would be pleasant, but it was nothing like what he was about to face in a scourging. Scourging is what they did to Jesus. It was not uncommon that people died in the middle of a scourging. At the very least, they would be crippled for life. So the intensity of this has gone up dramatically. Paul is tied up. They're ready to scourge him when Paul says, just a question here, is it lawful? to do this to a Roman who is uncondemned. Now this is what he's saying. If you were an actual Roman citizen, it came with significant perks. And one of those perks was you were not allowed to chain up, imprison, or in any way inflict pain on a Roman citizen without a full trial and a condemnation. If they were declared guilty and condemned, then there could be a consequence. So Paul has already been in chains, which is a violation. Now he's about to be scourged. So he raises the question. Immediately the soldier knows we are in real trouble here. So he goes to the commander and he tells him. The commander rushes down. He identifies that he himself had to offer a significant bribe in order to be a Roman citizen. We find out in next week's chapter the commander's name was Claudius. Under the reign of Emperor Claudius, it became very common that people paid a bribe in order to get citizenship. No doubt that's the case of the commander. But Paul had actually been born a citizen, which means either Paul's father or his grandfather had done something so significant 
for the Roman government that they granted him citizenship, which was then passed down from a father to a son. Now, one question would be, how was the commander supposed to know that? There was a Roman toga, but nobody wore them. They were extremely uncomfortable. Even in the city of Rome, almost no one wore them. Only for special events would they break them out. There was paperwork, but in a first century world, nobody carried paperwork with them. So the only way to know is word of mouth. But it was understood if anyone made a claim to be a Roman citizen and it was untrue, they would be put to death. So Paul identifies he is a Roman citizen. Immediately, that changes everything. You can tell the commander now is very nervous. He's already violated Paul's rights. This is going to completely change the process and the protocol moving forward. As Paul will now appear before the Jewish Sanhedrin for his second trial, which we'll talk about next week. As we wrap this up this morning, one has to be moved with Paul's deep love and compassion for his own people. These were people that were literally in the process of beating him to death. They hated him. They wanted him dead. And yet he is filled with love and compassion for his own people. We talked last week about Paul's calling. Paul was willing to go to Jerusalem knowing bonds and afflictions awaited him there to be obedient to his call. But it was also motivated by his deep love and compassion for his own people. For 20 years, he has longed for this moment when he could tell his fellow Jews, I was wrong. I was wrong about all of this. Jesus is the Messiah. This is what he has done for us. That they too would come to understand Jesus as Savior. Paul says in Romans chapter 9 that he would willingly give up his salvation. If it meant his fellow Jews would believe. He said in chapter 10 that the desire, the passion of his heart was that his own people would come to believe in Jesus. You really have to ask the question, what is it that caused Paul to have such a deep love and compassion for these people? The answer is identified in his own words because he never forgot that at one time he was just like them. That's what he said. 
I was zealous for God, just like you. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought this is what God wanted. Paul wasn't smarter. Paul wasn't more clever. Paul wasn't more religious. Paul hadn't somehow merited some special favor with God. For reasons only God knows. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And Paul believed. Paul never lost sight of the fact that he is just a sinner saved by grace. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, he would be no different from them. It's very easy for us to forget that. To forget that we are nothing more than sinners saved by grace. And I'm going to suggest to you the longer you've been a Christian, the more likely it is that you have forgotten that. We start to become arrogant. We start to become self-righteous. We start to divide the world up between the good guys and the bad guys, and we're the good guys. And somehow, apparently, we were more thoughtful. We were more clever. We were more something. And we forget that for reasons only God knows. Jesus revealed himself to you. And in that moment, you believed. And were it not for the grace of God, you would be no different from them. Nobody wants to look in the mirror and see themselves as arrogant and self-righteous. But let me help you with that. If honestly, in your heart of hearts, you have divided the world up into us against them, I'm quite confident you have lost sight of the fact that you are nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. Just a reminder, every person out there is a person made in the image of God with dignity and worth. Every person is a person Jesus died for. What a tragedy if in our anger and in our fear we would so lose sight of who we are as the people of God that we would actually find ourselves fighting against the very people we have been called to reach. If we're going to dare to be the church, we can't ever lose sight of the fact that we are simply sinners saved by grace.
Our Father, we're thankful that when we were lost in our sin, you sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. God, I don't know why you chose to reveal Jesus to us. But you did. That we might be saved. Lord, may we never forget that apart from the grace and mercy of God, we are no different than the people around us. That like Paul, we might be filled with a love and a compassion to tell them the truth that they too might come to know Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.